0: everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to the School of Discipleship series, Confessional Theology. This multi-part series introduces the doctrines, terminology, and methodology behind our Reformed approach and our communal confession of faith. In this episode, Preston highlights the topics and outlines the structure of this course. He examines what exactly is confessional theology, what is a confession of faith, how does confessional theology differ from other types of theology, how does it differ from scripture, and what will be explored in the Westminster Confession of Faith.
1: You know, I love this quote, and uh, I'm just going to quote it for you here. Uh, Let us in Heaven's name drag out the divine drama from under the dreadful accumulation of slipshod thinking and trashy sentiment heaped upon it, and set it on an open stage to startle the world into some sort of vigorous reaction. If the pious are the first to be shocked, so much the worse for the pious. Others will enter the Kingdom of Heaven before them. If all men are offended because of Christ, let them be offended. But where is the sense of their being offended at something that is not Christ, and is nothing like Him? We do Him singularly little honor by watering down His personality till it could not offend a fly. Surely it is not the business of the church to adapt Christ to men, but adapt men to Christ. If you know Dorothy Sayers, uh, she's a playwright, and she wrote this little uh, book called Creed or Chaos. And the preface of that book is actually a, uh, a roundtable that we typically do at the very beginning of the class. We're not going to do it this time because that's one of the classes I'm going to skip. But um, but the gist of it is the playwright, she wrote a play and, and integrated into it a, a, a whole kind, you know, all sorts of, of scripture and theolo- theology. She's a, you know, she's a secular playwright, if you will, so it wasn't expected. So he wanted to get rid of sort of the Christ stuff. And it inspired her, you know, to write this 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 little Series of essays, and her point being that, and she makes this, and this essay that, that this is taken from is called uh, Do- The Dogma is the Drama. And that was sort of her response to her, you know, you know, whoever it was that you don't understand. The the, the dogma is what is dramatic, and that just just really plucked a chord in me. You know, when I read that, it was it's so true um, that that you know, when we talk about theology, we cannot, we, we we can't make it into something that it's it is at the core um, the 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 study of God, Theos. And what I want to make sure you know is that when you go, you can go back and read through the syllabus, it tells you all about it, everything you need's in there, all the lessons are listed for you, um, uh, the handouts are here, but one of the things that, that I want to always say at the beginning is when we study theology, or, and especially uh, confessional theology, um, every, every lesson we, we will study is ultimately about God. What you're going to learn is that, how is it that we know God? How does He reveal Himself? And today we're going to talk about that. But at the core, it's through creation and redemption. Therefore, everything we study is the study of God. It's it's discovering God as He reveals Himself through the revelation of, of redemption. And so when we look at these doctrines, whether it's the doctrine of creation, whether it's the doctrine of God's sovereign decrees, whether it's the doctrine of providence, whether it's the doctrine of justification, sanctification, I would be disappointed if you walked out of here thinking that you had mastered it. In fact, that'd be an abstract you know, abstract failure. Um, at the end of every one of these studies, uh, there are two rightful responses. One is a, a kind of awesomeness of the mystery, the marveling of the mystery uh, that... Uh, is, is behind, in, with, and through every redemptive story is the mystery of God. And and as Paul would say in Romans, oh, who can know God? Who can know the mind of God? And he goes through this blushing, you know, uh, litany of, of descriptions of this sense of mystery that God has revealed in salvation. So, first of all, just know that if you if we've done the job right, um, then you will be brought to a place of of, of, of humility not of arrogance uh, there'll be a sense in which you know enough to know now that you really don't know, even though you will know enough to be saved and you will know enough to get on with God and so that's kind of what the first thing is just thinking in mind that that uh, every class is a doctrine of God, albeit uh, as it's revealed in creation and redemption. Secondly is that you'll discover that because all of our topics are going to be ultimately rooted, grounded and revealing God, that means that all of them are form a kind of web, a, an interconnected web of beliefs. You will discover that 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 uh, it's it's a worldview that's going to get formed here. It's a view of the world, but more it's a God view that's going to get formed. And, and, and in each of these doctrines, you'll find that they become interdependent with every other doctrine. And you're going to find that our confession will, will make note of that, that, that there's a sense in which um, uh, there's, a, there's a root thesis that however and whatever we know about theology, it must be consistent With what we believe about God. You know, He doesn't change, as we'll see. He's immutable and He's perfect. There is no room, there's no energy to change because He is perfection. So therefore, whatever we know about God through, say, the doctrine of faith, can't contradict what we know about God through the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, or the doctrine of God as revealed through providence, or the doctrine of God as revealed through um, the very sovereignty of His being. So we can't, and so what you're going to find is that that uh, some have described this system of faith as just a simple attempt to be consistent. Uh, to be, you know, consistent about who God is and not change definitions of God as we go through the various topics that might at least be more immediately satisfying to our humanism. So when we get to issues like free will and sovereignty, now, how many of you know the Calvinistic system, uh, and you hear of what? Predestination is the first thing you hear. We don't have a chapter on predestination. Now, that would be a little bit of a uh, mislead, because certainly th- there's a predestination doctrine within the doctrines of decree and, pre- and all of that. But, but we do have a, a chapter, a whole chapter on free will. But what you'll discover is that we're going to embrace the mystery of that. Uh, one person said that, that if uh, the scholastics through the Reformation began to talk through um, the mystery of God, the Calvin talked around it. In other words, it was okay. He didn't have to solve the mystery. Because here's the last thing I'm going to say by way of introduction. Um, whatever else confessional theology is, it is a theology that is driven by the logic of faith formation. No, let me put that in the context of why that's important. In fact, I'm going to show you a little quote here. But, but in that quote, what I mean by that is that um, there is historical theology. So what's driving theology now? What's driving theology, of course, in historical theology is you're going to locate, uh, you know, a historical moment or a historical figure, let's say Martin Luther or John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards. And it's going to be the theology of that. Time period, or the theology of that personality, right? That's the driving logic of a historical theology. Now, if you do systematic theology or philosophical theology, what are we? What's the driving principle? The driving principle is really uh, rational. It's a rationalism. It's a. It's an attempt um, to organize and understand. Theology as it is uh, integrated into our rational, logical way of understanding it. Now, I love both of these. Systematic theology is a good thing, it's a good exercise and discipline to, and you'll see that there is a kind of systematics root, you know, that that works itself through uh, the confessional theology that we're going to be studying called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I love historical theology. And clearly, you're gonna—if you've read Calvin's Institutes, if you've read Saint Augustine, uh, you will recognize his wholesale phrases right off their, uh, right off their books, right off their writings, right here in the Westminster Confession. So clearly, um, we're not anti-historical theology. In fact, much of our theology is informed by the history of theology, and reading and the precedent-setting uh, writings of those who've come before us. And we're certainly not anti-systematic theology in, the sen- in this class in the sense that, that we do send, w- desire um, to, to understand uh, the doctrines of God and, and of our salvation in and, and a way that, that's reasonable. We're, we're not going to can our brain. It's, we're going to really work hard to uh, push the envelope even sometimes to try to figure out how things fit together. And, uh, and so I don't want you to hear that, that I'm building a case for a kind of intellectual laziness. Uh, that's not what we want to do at all. But here's the clincher of what I want to say. But at the end of the day, um, God did not give us a book of theology. He gave us a book of redemption. The history of a people. It was given to people through uh, situational contexts. In other words, each of these books are written, and, and we call the books of the Bible, I'd like to call it more the chapters of the book, the Bible, uh, to emphasize the one authorship of the Bible. But, but what we see here is, is this knowledge of God un, unveiled through a history of redemption. And and most of it will come through situational writings, writings addressing problems, writings addressing the situation, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It's it's framework. We'll talk all about that when we get into scripture later on in the course. But but what's happening there is um, it's really a book of of confessing. It's, It's God redeeming a people And at the very heart of what it means to be a uh, confessional uh, theology is that they are the redeemed, it's here I'm quoting in Psalms, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, as in confess it. And that logic is different, because see at the end of the day we want to be true to who God is, and we're not going to uh, circumvent the truth question if it can't fit neatly into my rational brain. Um, it's, 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 it's a very core thing that we're about to get to today in our first lesson. Uh, who is going to be the arbiter of truth? The danger of rationalism in the post-enlightenment context is that humanity made itself the arbiter of truth. There was a revelation-based understanding of truth, pre-modern. Modernity and the Cartesian Revolution, as we describe it, just turned that baby right upside down. says to know truth I must start with myself and then I must derive from myself uh, it's an inductive versus a deductive way of understanding truth revelation based deductive you know uh, 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 humanism based is is of course inductive I start with his, his great thing I start with I am I exist I can know that and then from that, I'm going to postulate what else I can know and what else I can derive and what else I can. And that's just, uh, you know, I, and Descartes was, a, I think, a well-intended person. This isn't meant to do, the, you know, say anything negative necessarily about him. He was fighting some other forces and everything else. But but at the end of the day, that's what I want you to understand about confessional. When I use the word confessional theology, we're talking about a methodology that is driven by uh, the redemptive purpose of, of revelation itself which is for the purpose of forming faith, to believing in God. And, um, and, and that's going to be pretty significant, like I said, as you'll see. So if, if the, the logical is important because we want to understand it, but the logical always in the end of the day is subject to our capacity for logic. And we are not going to be limited by that. Because this is a confessing class, what we're concerned about is revelation. What has God revealed? And as we discern that revelation as to what God has revealed about Himself and about the world, about us, etc., we're going to we're going to we're going to then certainly you know discern that in relationship to other things that God reveals. So there's this interconnected web of belief that we'll be forming. But at the end of the day, we're going to say, oh, the mystery of God. Who can know him? And that's a good place to be because now we put ourselves in his mercy and we worship. And so that's the second point. If we're doing confessing theology, it's meant for worship. And I would say it would be another failure if on the way home, uh, you're not just worshiping God in your car. Thinking, wow, wow, God is God. Um, I remember when I went to seminary, um, I'd been doing campus ministry for about six or seven years and decided to go back to seminary and decide I needed to know what I was talking about. And um, I, I had several good and well-intended friends tell me, "Ben, you're going to lose your faith. Um, you're going up there and it's going you're going to get screwed up, you know, and um, and I was a little nervous about it. Maybe I would. I don't know. But, but I do need, you know, excited. But even, I can tell you how many times walking down that long hill at Gordon Conwell after an evening class in systematic theology. They called it systematic then. And, um, and, uh, and I was just like, wow, I'm having an ecstatic experience here that I'm discovering something about God that I never, it, the death of God. So I hope that and pray that's what's going to be your experience. So that's what I mean by confessional theology. Um, by confessionalism. you can see that right there. This is another handout, and it's small, I know. If you can't read it, it's fine. What I mean by that is the, our methodology then is not going to be to try to fit it into our rationalistic system, necessarily, though we want to make it reasonable. Our methodology is not trying to be conformed to what Calvin believed, though we're going to be certainly relying upon people like Calvin and others. But what we want to be, what we're concerned about is to be faithful, to, to know God. And that's what this is, a study of the God, right? And yet we're going to, we're going to, we're, our method then is going to refer not to historical figures, not to a systematic post-enlightenment and uh, kind of a philosophy of theology. What we're going to try to do is, is piggyback on others who have formed faith in their study of scripture. And we call that confessions. And so confessionalism is just an acknowledgement that we're not the first people to be studying the scripture. And there's this little picture in that little circle there that kind of illustrates that, that, that at the end of the day, you know, you see churches and Christian movements throughout history and here's this guy. So this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. And you can see how audacious that is. And so, when we study the Bible, all we're trying to, what we're going to say about, why are we using a creed called the Westminster Confession of Faith? Well, it's one of many good creeds, and we're going to talk about it. But at the end of the day, that creed was formed with the use of previous creeds, and with the form, with the use of previous creeds to that. And, and while there's no perfect and infallible creed, in fact, the very first statement of our creed is going to be, if you've got a problem, don't come to us, the creed, go to the Bible. That's your source. So a creed, don't get myth by it. If that's the first time you've heard about sort of confessionalism and this thing about confessions and, you know, that kind of thing. Just keep in mind that what we mean by that is that we believe that we have a much better uh, a chance at getting it right if we don't read the Bible alone. But we read the Bible with brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers who've been reading it not just for 50 years, for 2,000 years. And so to, to pick, to, and, and as Lewis has said, you know, it's really important to read old books. Why? Because every generation has a virus, the kind of intellectual, spiritual virus. We'll, we'll get to heaven, and we'll look back at us, and we'll blush and go, I cannot believe how ignorant. How could we have believed that? Now, I hope it's not much and more insignificant because I don't think it will. But that's the advantage of, of reading the scripture. So our goal is to read scripture is our only rule of faith and practice. That's a quote from Westminster that we'll be studying. But to not read it alone, to read it with our fathers and uh, forefathers and mothers who have passed down to us their consensus as to what the Scriptures principally preach. So what is a confession? A confession of faith is a consensus formally adopted by a church, it's not an individual person's consensus, it's an ecclesial consensus often produced out of these insignificant assemblies that would come together in times of crisis and say, we need to clarify in this age, what is it that we believe from Scripture? And they did that and the generations before them did that and the generations before that did that. Uh, there's a little phrase that comes out of the reformation simple referendum, which is always, always, always reforming. We're always going back to the scripture and we're always but we're doing it with with, with not as naked people but we're doing it communally. It's a communal way of reading the Bible. And what the the consensus, uh, what a Westminster Confession is, or any other consensus, it's just think of it this way. It's a consensus statement formally adopted by an ecclesial body as to what they believe the Scriptures principally teach. It's not intended to tell you everything the Scripture teaches. It's rather targeting those topics... Driven by what? What principle are they driven by? The, the faith principle, forming faith. What are those topics that we need to clarify in our age as related to faith formation that they might flourish in their salvation with God? And as generations passed, different, as you know, councils were formed. We had the Christological councils in the 3rd and 4th and 5th century. Uh, We had the Scripture councils even before that, in terms of what is our revelation and source in the 3rd century, the Marcionite controversy. You go through the history, you have, of course, the Reformation, where there was a huge clarification about what we call soteriology, or the doctrine of salvation, and, and, and the relation of grace and faith. And, of course, there was also a Reformation there on the church and what we believe about the church and we're still doing it. It's still happening. So there it is. Confessional theology, not systematic, though it will be reasonable. Not historical, though it certainly will be historically relevant, but confessional faith formation where at the end of the day uh, it should lead us to a sense of awe and wonder at the majesty of God in a way that would make us to worship him. Methodologically, uh, we are going to read the Bible communally rather than individualistically. And to do that, we're going to utilize the assistance of the ancient creeds. Just a few more words about that, and then I'm going to take a moment, and then we're going to pick up with the first lesson. But there is, let me tell you just a little bit about the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, Hopefully, some of you know about that. Let me find it real quickly here. I'm sorry. That's a hard copy, but... Let's see here. Where is all that stuff? I think it's the last one here. Let me see. Uh -uh, Not there. Well... This is a whole paper at the end. It's a kind of an addendum. Here we go. So let me just kind of read this little thing, and you can you can read it for yourself later, but I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from this. So we're using the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're new to this church, that's the creed. That's the confession, the consensus that we have adopted as a church body. It harkens back to 350 years ago. Uh, one great commentator, Ishmael Green, comments at the Catechism on the subsequent lectures. He was lecturing on the same kind of, the, on, the, on the Confession of faith as I am, are to be founded as the production of some of the most learned and pious divines that ever lived. He says this, this estimation of the quality of um, people assembled to develop a system of faith derived from the teachings of the Bible is not unique. Philip Schaff, which maybe some of you have heard about, a great historian, perhaps one of the most respected historians of the church and church creeds, could say about the Westminster Assembly that whether we look at the extent or ability of its labors or its influence upon future generation, it stands first among Protestant councils. There's some people that argue with that, I'm sure, but he later quotes Anglican Puritan Richard Baxter, although himself not a member of the assembly, but well qualified under any estimation to evaluate the quality of the saying. He says, quote, the divines uh, there congregated were men of eminent learning, godliness, ministerial abilities, and fidelity. And being not worthy to be one of them myself, I may the more freely speak the truth, even in the face of malice and envy, that as far as I am able to judge by the information of all history of any of that kind, by any other evidence left us, the Christian world since the days of the apostles had never a Senate of more excellent advice than this in the Senate of Dort. Now, this is hagiography. That means uh, saint worship language. All right. But I think I'm trying to get you a little romantically excited here, you know, that we're going to be studying something great. Tell me a little bit about it. The Westminster Sen- Assembly occupied a period of five years. So five years they assembled. Uh, Wrote papers, came back, debated them. Wrote papers, came back, debated them. um, And uh, five years and six months for the completion of its proper work, July 1, 1643 to February 26, 1649. It held no less than 1,163 sessions. It met every day except Saturday and Sunday from 9 o'clock till 1 or 2 in the afternoon. The afternoons were spent in committees. The divines would attend... uh, which attended consists of 122 people from several different affiliations. It was an ecumenical council, Episcopalians, the Belgic, the French, Helvetic, and other Reformed churches, Presbyterians, etc. There were two classes of Presbyterians, even corresponding to it, the low and the high church, uh, Episcopalians, they called themselves. Um, and it's just very significant um, that, that this has become such an incredible, uh, you know, you know, standard uh, to begin with. So no, it's not the only one we'll reference, uh, but it's the primary one. It's the the one of this church. Um, So that's a little bit about what I mean by confessional theology and our use of the Westminster Confession of Faith.
0: Thanks for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like the show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org. Until next time, this is CPC Podcasts.